Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking about somebody that most of you will have heard of, and that is the famous journalist, author, novelist, poet, and essayist, G.K. Chesterton. Now, those of you who have read my 2016 book, The Culture War, will know that I use a lot of Chesterton's thinking, especially on the issues of eugenics and euthanasia, uh, in my own analysis of what's going on today in this culture. And even though I myself am not a Catholic, I'm actually reformed, Chesterton's analysis of issues that are cropping up again today, I think is profoundly helpful for anybody who wants to get a grasp on what it is that's going on, especially his works on eugenics, his discussions about abortion, his view of sexuality, his predictions about feminism. These things were incredibly prescient in a way that's almost shocking to read. And in fact, uh, Douglas Wilson, who runs St. Andrew's College in Moscow, Idaho, often refers to himself as a Chestertonian Cal Calvinist because of the way Chesterton uh, wove his cultural analysis together with a beauty of writing and rhetoric that I think is virtually unparalleled in the 20th century. And so to talk about G.K. Chesterton, uh, we have on the show today somebody I think who is, deserves the title of a virtual unparalleled Chesterton fan, and that is uh, American author Dale Alquist. And he has written, edited, or contributed to an enormous number of books on the English English author and philosopher Chesterton, including The Apostle of Common Sense, Common Sense 101, Lessons from G.K. Chesterton, The Complete Thinker, and In Defense of Sanity. He's also the president and co-founder of the American Chesterton Society and runs a series of schools called Chesterton Academies that seek to showcase Chesterton's thinking. And so just as an introduction to this thinker, who he was and the impact that he had not only on the, on the 20th century, but the impact of his thinking on the 21st century, uh, we are happy to present to you this conversation with Dale Alquist. Well, I guess I'll start off by asking a question that I think most of our, our listeners and viewers will know the answer to, but just in case, who was Gilbert Keith Chesterton? Well, the short answer is that he was the best writer of the 20th century. English writer who uh, died in 1936 and did all of his writing in that first uh, third of the, of the 20th century, and during that time was one of the most prolific writers who ever lived, wrote about everything from theology to philosophy to politics, poetry, art, uh, literary criticism, but also detective stories. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then he was um, uh, a very famous uh, Catholic convert, uh, probably the most famous English Catholic convert of the 20th century. And uh, after his conversion, became a very eloquent uh, defender of the Catholic faith. So, uh, when you say he was the most important writer, uh, bold claim, especially that period you've got, T.S. Eliot, you've got, you've got a lot of people to choose from in that period, just in that country. So, make the case for why G.K. Chesterton was the best writer of his time. Well, one of the, uh, one of the great gauges is, is the range of writing that I, that I already mentioned. He was a master at every genre in which he wrote. So here's a guy who's primarily a journalist, but as a journalist was a master essayist. And his essays are 
Uh, they are exquisite works of of that. Yeah, form. they really are. Right. But then, you know, he he was a poet and a very well-established poet. And people have forgotten how good his poetry is because of all of his other writing. Mm-hmm. If he'd written less, he'd probably be more popular and, and, and more uh, more studied. But he's he's too big to get a hold of. Even Christopher Hitchens said that G.K. Chesterton's poems were excellent. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the great irony of, of Christopher Hitchens <laughs> assessment of, of Chesterton. And then, of course, he uh, he wrote fiction and his fiction really doesn't fall into any category. Uh, it's it stands alone. Books like The Man Who Was Thursday and Man Alive and The Ball on the Cross yep. and Napoleon and Notting Hill. They don't really compare with other 20th century uh, fiction. They, they just have an absolutely unique approach. And then, um, you know, then then set all that aside and just take his his works of uh, pure rhetoric, things like Orthodoxy, Everlasting Man, where he lays out just an amazing case for Christianity in a fresh and unexpected way. Uh, again, incomparable to any other uh, uh, approach in that genre. But then his literary criticism. Mm-hmm. The way he approaches another writer and gets inside another piece of literature, uh, his book on Charles Dickens stands alone uh, as any of any book written about Charles Dickens, but of any work of literary criticism. Uh, I have compiled all of his writings on Shakespeare, and he has a, a way of uh, analyzing Shakespeare and pointing out things that that are absolutely fabulous. And you know, T.S. Eliot himself uh, praised Chesterton's literary criticism and you know you have uh even even though chesterton savaged t.s Eliot's uh, most famous poem yeah i know hilarious uh, absolutely hilarious uh, they they seem to have uh, gotten along okay even though they never met their letters to one another were respectful but their their writings about each other were sometimes uh, critical uh, <laughs> and, and, and that shows how chester was able to get along with his uh, his opponents uh but uh, but then you know think think of his book on Thomas Aquinas, uh, Etienne Gilson, who was the uh, really the leading Thomist scholar of the 20th century, said that Chesterton's book on Thomas Aquinas is the best book ever written on Thomas Aquinas. Uh, you know that's just high praise from someone who clearly was an authority in his field, and so so someone who is just so consistently good at all these different literary genres. Uh, that's part of the case for why I say he's the best writer of the 20th century. But then the other the other uh, argument is the writing itself. Yeah, he's just this beautiful writer who has this way of manipulating the language to control it to make it do whatever he wants it to do. He it, it, language goes on all fours when he uh, when he gets control of it. Yeah, so we'll get into the one thing I really want to discuss in a minute, which is his prescience. When you bring up the man who was Thursday, I, I I love the book, but I have to say the best the best thing in the entire book is the poem that opens the book, when he uses lines that so perfectly suit our times, like uh, they twisted even decent sins into shapes not to be named. Just the the lines in that poem at the beginning of this book, written you know nearly a century before our time, suit our time so perfectly that sometimes it's 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 difficult when you're reading. 
him not to think that he's he's writing, you know, in the back pages of the New York Times last week with some of the stuff he covers. But just to give some of our less historically inclined um, uh, viewers and listeners uh, a bit of a, a a way to situate themselves, maybe give us a brief overview of his chronology when he was born, a bit of his life, so that as we talk about this, as as we get into um, exactly what the impact of his work was and why he was so prescient, let's give them an idea of of where Chesterton fits in the grand sweep of the uh, of the 20th century. Great. So born in 1874 in suburban London and uh, went to St. Paul's School, which is a fairly well-established preparatory school, but was a very poor student. And his mm-hmm. uh, parents were told by the headmaster not to bother sending him to the university because it was impossible to teach him anything. Right. (laughs) Consequently, he went to art school, but he dropped out and he started working for a publisher and he started writing and uh, decided that that's that was the the career he wanted to pursue and uh, started to get uh, book reviews published and uh, soon established himself as a, a regular columnist in some leading literary papers of London and as it was right at the turn of the century when he really started getting published in full, his first book of poetry came out in 1900. And um, by 1904, he was just considered one of the leading literary lights of London. And he was only, uh, you know, about 30 years old at that point. And uh, so much younger than all the other literary stars. And immediately won everyone's respect with his uh with his wonderful paradoxes and wit and uh he just whatever he wrote he, whatever he touched uh mm-hmm. was was beautified and beatified by it and but then he he raised a lot of eyebrows by defending christianity in, yeah. uh, in some of his early columns and uh they said well that's just Chesterton being paradoxical and then they were shocked to find out that Chesterton actually believed the things he was saying and uh, then uh, wrote a book called Heretics in 1905, where he takes on people like Bernard Shaw and H.G. Uh, Wells, who became his philosophical opponents, but his lifelong friends. Mm-hmm. And um, Wasn't Bernard Shaw the first one to approach Chesterton's widow and offer his financial support after his passing? Yes, that's true. And H.G. Uh, Wells, who uh, lifelong agnostic and libertine, also went to Chesterton and uh, Chesterton's wife and said, if there's any chance of me going to heaven, it's going to be because I was a friend of G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So, um, so then uh, he, uh, he wrote this book, Orthodoxy, in 1908. If you read it today, you, you, you swear it was written by a, a Catholic. You think he's defending the Catholic faith, but at this point he's um, a member of the uh, Church of England. And what the book is about is how he discovered and came to believe in Christianity. Right. But when he talks about orthodoxy, he's referring, he says, to the to the Apostles' Creed. That's what he means by Christianity. Yeah. Very similarly to C.S. Lewis with mere Christianity. Right, right. And, uh, of course, C.S. Lewis was one of the writers most influenced by Chesterton. Mm-hmm. Uh, really takes all of his major arguments from uh, mere Christianity are taken from the everlasting man. Um, and then, uh, uh, so, so at a certain point, he meets a Catholic priest uh, named uh, Father John O'Connor, who uh, was very influential on Chesterton and kind of became a, not only a friend, but a spiritual advisor and, uh, and was the, the inspiration for the character of Father Brown. Uh, and oh, when no Chesterton, kidding. 
Yeah, when Chesterton created that character, he really changed the whole course of, of detective fiction because um, it was a great departure from the Sherlock Holmes character. Right. Uh, who, most famous literary detective, um, the super sleuth who was way too smart, who you know knows uh, anything that you can look up an encyclopedia. He just, it comes out of his head. And... Uh, and Chesterton has this character who doesn't seem too bright and uh, is sort of dismissed by everybody else. And when he first comes into the story, you don't even notice him. And he's a priest besides. So what do priests know? And uh, he does a great job with that literary device to, uh, to do something unexpected. He creates the underdog detective. Right. And... Um, who just simply observes things a little bit better than everybody else has a little more common sense than anyone else. And, you know, frankly, if you, if you, if you listen to confessions all day, you know something about how evil works. Right. Right. And so, uh, so that became a, a, just a very beloved character in detective fiction. And uh, so father Brown makes his appearance in 1912 uh, in the meantime, Chesterton's own wheels are turning. He's moving closer towards the Catholic faith. But then he has a major setback in that he has a, uh, a complete physical breakdown and is semi-comatose for almost six months. Right. And uh, everyone thinks he's going to die in 1915, but he, uh, he does emerge from that. And his wife at that point was fully expecting him to want to enter the Catholic Church. What was the cause of that breakdown? It was just a, a, it's just physical breakdown. It's kind of a medical mystery. You know, we okay. just, you know, we only know certain symptoms that were described, but he, he basically uh, collapsed and, um, uh, and, and really was semi comatose. And, and it was when he was coming, kind of going in and out of consciousness, uh, his wife asked him at one point, she, she says, I wanted to see if he was, you know, aware of what was going on and, if he was uh, cognizant of anything. And she says, Gilbert, do you know who's taking care of you? And, and he said, God. Well, so, <laughs> and so that was interesting. And so uh, 1915, he, he, uh, he recovers, he goes right back to the desk and starts writing again. And he is, it's almost as if it was just a, a six month pause in his brain. And then he goes right back to work uh, in the midst of world war one uh, a tragedy visits him and that his, his brother dies in World War One, And uh, it's a double tragedy because his brother was the editor of a newspaper called The New Witness. Hmm. And G.K. Uh, took over as the editor of that paper. And he was not made to be an editor at all. No. Uh, and yet that was uh, an obligation he had to fulfill. And he, he, he continued to write uh, for many papers and continued to... Uh, crank out one book after the other. And then uh, it was in 1922 when he made the decision to enter the Catholic Church. And it came right after a trip to the Holy Land. And uh, uh, that's, that's when he uh, knew that it was time. And so it was a very long and deliberate and intellectual conversion. His end of his life uh, for the last uh, 14 years was marked by several major uh, uh, 
speaking tours, travels to other countries. He came to America twice. Uh, Tell us a bit about his uh, his his American tours, especially because I know a lot of people listening to this are American. What did Chesterton do when he came here? I know I actually have the first edition of his his book on America, which uh, <laughs> which what, what is sort of like an America updated to Tocqueville almost. Yeah, yeah, he 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 definitely. Uh, that's a book to to read right alongside to Tocqueville. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, he. Uh, it was a it was a great um, experience for him. First of all, he was really well received. Both of his both of his speaking tours. It was front page news. Every every city he visited, um, he sold out um, the uh, auditorium where he was speaking and uh, was just given great press. And it was the first time he he'd ever uh, experienced this this adulation of the press and the constant interviews and everything. And that was kind of a a distinct American uh, uh, characteristics that he yeah. never had, had before. Um, and uh, that first trip, he went primarily to the, uh, the Northeastern United States and he got to the Midwest as well. The second, um, the second tour, which is in 1931, 30 and 31, he was a guest lecturer at the university of Notre Dame for six weeks. And then, uh, then toured the country and got all the way to the West coast and twice to Canada. Um, he had relatives who lived in Ottawa that he visited, but he spoke in Toronto and Montreal and then in Vancouver on the West Coast. Okay. Well. I didn't yeah. know he'd been to Vancouver. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, so re- really, um, he, he was uh, very entertaining as a speaker. And a, he, he'd go up with a couple of handwritten notes and immediately uh, depart from whatever was written on those notes. And uh, and then he he would take questions from the audience, and that was always the the most enjoyable uh, part of of any of his talks was his off the cuff remarks right. when people asked him things, and uh, you know like uh, could you speak louder? He said, well, "Don't don't worry, you're not missing anything." You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so um, so then that was his second tour was there, but he, he visited Poland. Um, uh, Spain, France, uh, the Netherlands. Uh, so it just uh, was really well received around the world. And then it was in the, the 20s, he wrote his book, uh, The Everlasting Man. And in 1932, he wrote his book on uh, Thomas Aquinas that was uh, so highly praised. He dies uh, in 1936, age of 62. Very young, uh, eh? Yeah, yeah. Congestive heart failure. And yeah, he was young, but you know what? If he'd lived longer, we'd be sorting out even more of what he'd written. And we've got, a, we've got enough to do. I mean, during that time he lived, he wrote more than just about anyone else has ever written. He, uh, he wrote a hundred books and 5,000 literary essays and 1500 poems. Wow. And then all, all those uh, detective stories. So one of the things I wanted to discuss with you is, is I've, it, Chesterton's strange because it seems like no matter what subject you're talking about, there's a quote for it. Uh, I didn't realize how true that was until I found that essay he'd written on a chair. Uh, there's there's almost there's almost almost no subject upon which he did not comment more articulately than anybody else could. But considering that the culture wars we find ourselves in the midst of now with society going 
fairly insane, especially after um, unhar- uh, unhooking itself from the Judeo-Christian traditions and then proceeding to jackhammer what's at whatever's left. And one of the books I have found uh, by him that's the most fascinating, and it's not nearly as well known as Orthodoxy and, and the Everlasting Man, is uh, Eugenics and Other Evils, which... I honestly think it's one of the most prescient books uh, written prior to 1950 because almost every paragraph, every page applies to today. Uh, so what? how did Chesterton manage to perceive the threat that was coming in so effectively when he looked at eugenics? And, and maybe give us your analysis as the resident Chesterton expert on why it is that eugenics and other evil seems to apply so wholesale to today. Well, uh, the book was... Uh, written in about 1922, but he'd actually written it about 10 years earlier, thinking okay. thinking it was not even going to be uh, necessary because he, he he thought he was perceiving maybe a change in the society and, th- and that the book would not have to be published. And then think, instead things got worse. And um, eugenics was a concept that uh, was widely embraced by the intelligentsia. Uh, the term was invented by... Um, Francis Galton, who was a first cousin of Charles Darwin. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to apply the principles of uh, good breeding to humans so that you can have a better form of human being. And uh, that meant that only certain people should mate and other people should not. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, the, the initial purpose of birth control a, a phrase that Chesterton hated because he said there was no birth and there's no control uh, <laughs> but of contraception was, was not just for um, uh, sexual uh, self-indulgence, but actually to prevent certain people from having children. The undesirables should right. not give birth. And so um, the, the, uh, uh, that's why this was what leads to the other evils. So eugenics means the good breeding, the good type of people should have children. That way we'll have a better human race. <laughs> and uh, one of, of course, the leading proponents in America was Margaret Sanger. Yes. Who was the head of the American Eugenics Association. And uh, and the, the motto was more children for the fit and less for the unfit. Yeah. And she... Uh, established her birth control clinics in all the uh, the neighborhoods of the people she did not want to see uh, procreate. So she mm-hmm. set them up in black neighborhoods, in uh, Jewish neighborhoods, in all the ethnically Catholic neighborhoods. And uh, because in her opinion, it should be just the mighty whites who are, who are having children. Right. Yep. So it was a totally, uh, you know, the great, the great founder of Planned Parenthood was a complete racist, and uh, that's always overlooked. And her her reason for for birth control was to really control who was born. That right. that was the point. So Chesterton is writing about this, and he's the only major writer of his time who wrote a book against eugenics. All the other other writers were were, were writing books in favor of eugenics, mm-hmm. and of course the term. Um, suddenly went away for some reason mm-hmm. after World War II. And there was some guy in Hitler. Uh, yeah, Hitler was his name, mm-hmm. who, who was practicing, uh, you know, enforcing the same idea of eugenics. It was, he only wanted certain people to, to, to breed. And uh, 
if you think of um, the the ramifications of of that idea, uh, has just done untold damage on yep. our society. Yeah. And uh, you know, Chesterton said that contraception is going to lead to uh, abortion and to infanticide and to uh, euthanasia. Yep. He said um, it's going to lead to divorce. It's going to lead to sexual perversion, and it's going to lead to uh, more forms of abuse of women. Right. All of the same things that he talked about uh, in the 1920s were exactly what uh, what Pope uh, Paul VI wrote about in in Humanae uh, Vitae. Uh, uh, and the fact is, the young priest. Uh, Giovanni Battisti Montini, who became Paul VI, had read Chesterton in the 1920s. In fact, right. he, even re- he reviewed a book that Chesterton wrote on St. Francis of Assisi. And in that line, in that book, uh, Chesterton has the line, uh, the moment that sex ceases to be a servant, it becomes a tyrant. Right. The moment that sex ceases to be a servant, it becomes a tyrant. And that's that's exactly what happens with, with contraception. It becomes a tyrant. Sex becomes a tyrant. Well, one of the reasons I, I think that Chesterton's book on eugenics and his writings on eugenics were so significant is because most people today don't know how widespread this idea actually was. It's a BBC is currently doing a series on eugenics, so that people are starting to examine this topic more honestly, but it sort of went down the memory hole for quite a while, right? Eugenics literally being Greek for good birth, euthanasia being Greek for good death, even the language, of course, has, has been mangled beyond moral recognition. And... It, all of the great writers of that day, George Bernard Shaw, H.B., H.G. Uh, um, Wells, uh, Churchill briefly backed uh, eugenics, although he later backtracked as anybody who lived long enough to see Hitler um, recognized, okay, this is where this all ends up if you get a bit too enthusiastic about these principles that have been put forward. Um, but what was it that led Chesterton to be one of the only ones? Um, Because that's the thing that I find interesting. It's not like he was the only Christian writer, although uh, when... Especially some of his, uh, his 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 earlier essays are just are are, are more or less unmatched. In, in I, I really like the way you put it earlier when you said he made the language crawl down on all fours. Um, there are some lines I remember reading one line in Orthodoxy, and I said like if I ever manage to come up with a line close to that, I'll just stop because just <laughs> that's like that's a line you can just hang your hat on. But how was how was he one of the few who a knew what was coming and b managed to articulate it so thoroughly? And then C, I guess, how did he manage to keep his friends after doing that? Because some of his closest uh, frenemies, if you will, were the ones that were pushing these ideas to begin with. Yeah, the great thing about Chesterton is, to answer the last question first, uh, Jonathan, is that he was someone who truly loved his enemies. And they knew he loved him, and they they couldn't help but love him back. Uh, he, uh, he didn't attack them as people. He just attacked their bad ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, he separated their ideas from the person, and so he he showed his personal charity and and uh, you know tr- kinship with the, with the fellow human being. Well, he said, but now here's what he's saying, and you know if you take his this idea to its logical conclusion, this is where it's going to lead, and uh, was just just would patiently show that that they had a bad idea, mm-hmm. and and the idea is never to 
crush your enemy, but to convert your enemy. And I think a lot of his uh, enemies actually did end up on his side. The most famous ones did not, you know, convert in, in their ideas, but they never um, lost their charity for Chester. So, I mean, in that sense, he really is the model Christian that, that, uh, that we're supposed to be when we're, we're told to love our enemies. But now, how did he see these things? He, he really understood um, the importance of the family as the basis of society. Mm-hmm. Now, that's really present in his early writings, that the, the foundational unit in the, in, the, um, in the society is the family. And if the family is any way weakened or falls apart, then the society falls apart. So he says he saw that the, the modern world is attacking two basic relationships. It's attacking the relationship between husband and wife and the relationship between mother and child. Right. And, and everything in the modern world is an attack on those things. You're, you're breaking apart the natural relationship between a husband and wife. And you're breaking apart the natural uh, relationship between a mother and child. And, and you're doing it with all kinds of societal things like public schools and uh, uh, birth control and uh, uh, sexual perversion. All those things attack that, that, those primary relationships. Uh, and he, you know, he said the rise of feminism is really uh, an attack on motherhood. And uh, so right. he saw... And so all these things coming as uh, they're they're all part of the same uh, phenomenon, and and so it just he, fit he, in with he the. He had very that cool. line. I think he had that line about feminism, where he said, "Thousands of women said we will not be dictated to," and promptly became secretaries. Yes, yeah, it's a great great line, but he he, he gets it right because he's you know he's just, the two um, again. It was a reaction against. Um, uh, He's pointed out that, that, you know, the big business and commercialization um, is one force that's attacking the family. And then the other one is big government and, and socialization. And they're, they're both just ripping the family apart. Um, and interestingly, the only one I hear uh, today that echoes Chesterton's dual approach uh, critique of, of feminism precisely the way he does criticizing basically the marriage of, of big government forces and corporate corporatism and, 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 and wage slavery is Peter Hitchens who uh, says almost precisely the same thing. Well, there's a lot of critiques of feminism around, of course, um, especially in conservative circles, but Hitchens is the only one that makes exactly the same one that GK Chesterton does, which I find interesting. Um, well, he's, I, he probably I got it. From his him. homework, right? He's like, yeah. <laughs> he's, He's read the right material. Yeah, I know. It's. It, I think that's a really uh, eye-opening critique of feminism. That he says it's a result of the pressure of big business and big government. But the, the result is an attack on motherhood. So when you look at Chesterton's body of work, and I think it's pretty safe to say nobody's more familiar with his collective body of work than you are, uh, what what are the are the the essays, the books, the works that stand out to you as as the most prescient? And here I mean, especially in a cultural and social sense, especially as as we look to try and understand, you know, twenty nineteen and the insanity that we're in. Uh, what works of Chesterton stand out to you as essentially helping us understand the times that we live in, despite the fact that he wrote them nearly a hundred years ago. Yeah, the the problem the problem with Jonathan is that he since he wrote so much, um, <laughs> that that's the biggest challenge of how to even approach Chester. You know, you got one or two books he can always recommend to people because mm. they are at least uh, a finite number of pages long. But the but the main problem 
is that he, as a journalist, um, he was, you know, he was cranking out essays all the time. Yeah. And I, I tend to love his essays more than anything. That's, that's the, that's the Chester material I most enjoy reading because that's where he is analyzing what's going on in the society. And that's where he seems to be writing about today more than even the time he lived in. He right. saw that, he saw that we were headed towards a new dark ages. Guess what? We we're here now. We're in a new dark ages that um, it's, it's a, it's an attack on civilization itself. Uh, it's a rise of, of barbarianism of people who are uh, more concerned with worshiping nature and fulfilling their own uh, personal uh, desires rather than an ordered society based on responsibility. You know, those, those were his predictions. And he saw it happening at the beginning of the 20th century. He saw where it was leading. And that's why it's so interesting to read him right now, because it seems like he's describing what's going on mm -hmm. right now. So you've been working on promoting uh, his work and getting people reintroduced to his work uh, through the Chesterton Society for years. What has that been like? Do you see people uh, recognizing that he was very prescient and that a lot of his analysis and his diagnosis is just as relevant and prescient today as it was back then? Yeah, well, I have to say that, you know, when I started, uh, you know, giving into my passion for Chesterton and really putting all my time and effort into it, yeah, there wasn't a lot of interest in Chesterton then, but I had I had the great privilege of, of having that television show on EWTN, uh, The Apostle of Common Sense, and that certainly uh, gave him some exposure that he didn't have for a long time. When I started reading Chesterton in 1981, only six of his books were in print. Right? Oh, then. wow. Yeah. And uh, so I had to comb through used bookstores to find his uh, his books and uh and my, you know, it's, it's kind of became a, an obsession that, all right, I got cheated, you know, in my education. I should have been taught Chesterton. And I want to make sure the next generation isn't cheated like my generation was. And so that, that's what it became, uh, you know, my cause. And mm -hmm. uh, we did the, uh, the, we started the American Chesterton Society. And, uh, you know, it was a, using this new uh, technology called the internet. Oh yeah. Uh, we started, started a, a very popular webpage uh, devoted to Chesterton. Uh, we were, you know, got in on the ground floor with Chesterton.org cause uh, you know, that's when there only was one other thing in the world named Chester. And that was a hydraulic valve company out in Massachusetts. Right. You know, they're, they're .com, Right. And so uh, we, uh, you know, we started, publishing, uh, uh, you know, the magazine, Gilbert magazine. And, uh, and then Ignatius Press uh, started the publishing the collected works and getting his books back into print then. And uh, a lot of good things started happening. That it, and the, uh, the interest in Chesterton started to build with a new generation. Uh, in, many, in many cases, the, the, the older generation uh, were still pretty much in the dark as to who Chesterton was. The, right. The people who were raised in the, in the sixties and seventies, but now he's, his name is getting out there among the 20 and 30 year olds and, and even, you know, uh, teenagers who are being exposed to him. And now there's this great interest among young people in Chesterton again, because they see that, uh, that he's, he's just 
countercultural, and that's mm-hmm. what they, that's one of the things they like about him. And as a journalist, he's very accessible as well. He's he's considering when he was writing, he's very easy to read. Yeah, very easy to read. And of course, delightful with all the great uh, uh, quote, quotable quotes, the great witticisms, and uh, you, know, you know, the Christian ideal's not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Right, or the saying that that more or less um, encapsulates our age, which is you should never tear down a fence until you know why it was put up to begin with. Right, right. Which could summarize the last 25 years pretty effectively. Yeah. Um, One of the things I wanted to touch on is one of the things that so many people I think have found attractive about Chesterton is, as you said, he truly loved his enemies. And there was this, there's this one great story I recall, and and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm I'm recalling it correctly. It was the Chinese restaurant where he used to eat and the, and the owner of the restaurant described um, seeing him come in. And he said, this fat man comes in and he writes, and then he stops. He reads what he writes. He laughs. And then he writes again. And that's kind of how he would write. He was very much a joyful warrior. He wasn't, uh, in today's terminology, an angry troll. He was responding to the arguments, but he would enjoy the rhetorical combat with people like Shaw and Wells. Even though Shaw and Wells were putting forward ideas that were are, were just as insidious as a lot of the ideas that we're fighting today. What was that side of him like? And do you think that's one of the reasons people are so attracted to him today? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, the The story was that it, it, it was just a normal English pub where he was doing his writing, but the waiter was a foreigner. That's that's why he said, "Okay, okay." Yes, man, he 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 writes, he laughs, he writes again, and he laughs. Yeah, that's <laughs> what we, we don't we don't know of what ethnic persuasion the gentleman was, but <laughs> but it, it was he was a foreign waiter. That's why he talked that way. Right, right. Um, but I'll tell you, um, his uh, sorry about a school bell right there. We're we're at Chesterton <laughs> Academy right now. Oh, you're at the um, Chesterton Academy right now. Yes, yes. Oh, well, it's excusable then. That's right. So we, um, w- I think one of the great attractions of Chesterton is his joyfulness and his um, his light play because um, he he isn't angry and you know no nobody's attracted to anger at all. Um, right. It's, it, it's it doesn't win anybody over. But uh, I think what people like about Chesterton is his great joy. And that's one of the things they're attracted to. Uh, you can you can almost hear him laughing as he's writing. Uh, you know that description of him by the waiter. You can you can see it in his writing mm-hmm. that he's enjoying this phrase that he's just written. And uh, and he says you, he says it's a conceit not to laugh at your own jokes. He said, uh, <laughs> can't, "Can't an architect pray in his own cathedral?" And uh, <laughs> I never heard that one. <laughs> and so. Um, so the joy is there, but why is there joy? Why? What's the purpose of this great joy? Well, look, we've been given this great gift of existence that we don't deserve. There's absolutely nothing we did to deserve the gift of life. The only response we can have is gratitude and wonder. And that informs all of his thinking. And uh, he realizes, yes, we live in this fallen world, but that's the, the good news is that is that this world is is not not what what God created. This is this is the way He meant it to be. This is not this present condition we're in is not the way it's supposed to be. That's good news. That means we can get out of this condition and we can start pursuing what's right, pursuing what's virtuous, and that's where happiness lies. 
So tell me about these, the Chesterton Academies, because one of the interesting things about your story and how it's intertwined with, with Chesterton's work is you start the American Chesterton Society, uh, you start putting uh, G.K. Chesterton back into print. I think most people who own any of his books besides a handful uh, of the earlier ones, I have some of the old ones. I have his biography, I believe, the American one, a signed edition of his one of his po- uh, po- poetry, right. a few things like that. Everything else is, is basically due to your work getting this stuff back into print. And then there's the Chesterton. Chesterton Academies. Um, so explain to uh, our listeners and our viewers what these Chesterton Academies are, uh, because most people are, are not going to be familiar with them, but it's gone from turning into this, this private obsession of yours to entire academies set up um, in his name. Tell us the, the story and what these things are all about. Well, the first Chesterton Academy was started 12 years ago uh, in Minnesota, in the Twin Cities, and um, the the whole purpose was to have a classical Catholic school with a very integrated curriculum uh, and using Chesterton as the model thinker, as the, as the patron of the school, because here was someone whose thought is, is comprehensive and, uh, and that's the kind of thinker we want to create is someone who's a comprehensive and right. complete thinker. And so it's a, it's a really wonderful curriculum where we study the classics and, uh, it's, it's four years. There's four years of philosophy. And there's, there's no secondary schools that – there's almost none that teach any philosophy. There's no secondary schools that teach four years of philosophy. And this develops a student's ability to use reason because, as Chesterton says, reason is under attack even more than faith in our, in our world today. People yeah, don't, know, yeah. don't know how to think. And, uh, and so we teach you – know, starting from basic logic – to uh, to Plato, Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, and then they can watch what happens with modern philosophy and where it just goes wrong because it departs departs from basic rules of reason. But then, of course, faith and reason go together. So we, we teach four years of theology as well. Um, but then it's a classical curriculum, so it's truth, beauty, and goodness. Mm-hmm. We teach art. So there's four years of art required so that by the fourth year, the students are, are painting oil masterpieces. They're copying masterworks in, in oil. And then they're required to be uh, uh, four years of music as well. So they okay. all know how to sing. They do chant. Um, and they, they the whole school sings beautifully together. And then four, uh, one year of speech and then three years of required drama as well. So they have the experience of... Uh, of uh, knowing how to stand up and and present a good idea, so they right. not only learn how to think, but they learn how to declaim that idea as well. And then, uh, then we, you know, that's all in addition to a good literature and math and science program as well. Right. There's the school bell again, <laughs> and so. Um, but then it's all centered around the incarnation and daily mass. So uh, you know, the, that's that's the centerpiece of the day. And uh, our, our students uh, know that they are here uh, in, in, you know, to form their Catholic faith and <laughs> prepare them really for the, for the world, for whatever they're going to do. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous community. And so we started our first school, and then it was in a few years people started coming to us and say, well, we want to do what you're doing. And... Um, we just started packaging up the curriculum and showed the templates and how we did it. And 
Other schools have gotten started using the same curriculum, and we uh, all form what's called the Chesterton uh, Schools Network. Right. And we, uh, we basically are all operating on the same system and support each other. There's so what, 18, 18 which of Chesterton's works do they have to read? Um, they read Orthodoxy, uh, St. Francis, St. Thomas Aquinas, Everlasting Man. And then they, they do some essays and uh, Lepanto as well. And, and oh. the, Ballad the, the Ballad of the White Horse as well. The Ballad of the White Horse yeah. is, okay, I'm actually not sure which one, now that you, if you, if you pit Lepanto against the, uh, the Ballad of the White Horse, I'm not sure which ones are better. Yeah, the best lines are like the, the great, <laughs> do they have to memorize them all? Like they're very, like you just read them and they stick in your head, right? I think with the, uh, uh, the Ballad of the White Horse, the great gales of Ireland are the men that God made mad for all their wars are merry and all their songs are sad. These lines, do they just stick in your head, which is why his poetry is so magnificent. Yes, yes. So if somebody wanted to, to, to look at Chesterton and, and, and let's say somebody's looking at today's culture wars, which is, of course, like what this show is primarily about. It's a lot of the reporting that LifeSite News does uh, is on the, the, the life and family issues specifically. If somebody wanted to look at Chesterton's work to help them get a, get, get a grasp of what's going on now, where would you recommend they start? Well, I, I actually uh, always recommend for, if people haven't read any Chesterton at all, and you'll forgive me for sounding self-serving. I recommend that they read one of my books on Chesterton first right. as a as a doorway to Chesterton because uh, he can be a little intimidating just to to walk into. And so my book, The Apostle of Common Sense and Common Sense One Hundred and One, are are great introductory books, and uh, they start to show his his prophetic nature. But I think the of, of my books, the one that is is most about what's going on today is called The Complete Thinker. Okay. And that's the one I would I would recommend to see. Here's how Chester is, it takes on all the things that we're facing right now. Okay, okay. Well, as a final question, when you look at, at the sweep of Chesterton's career, uh, what is the one thing you wish everybody knew about him? The one thing that I wish everybody knew about him. Yeah, and you know the most about him, so I figured this question would be appropriately difficult and the answer uh, appropriately interesting. Well, um, you may or may not know that I'm, of course, uh, also trying to lead the charge to get Chesterton canonized. Okay. And um, I think that, um, you know, for, for me, and I'm a, I'm a Catholic convert because of reading Chesterton, and he's, he continues to bring people into the Catholic faith. But the reason why I think he's a saint is he helped me understand what saints are because as a former Baptist, there were no saints in our theology, right? And so um, what I found in Chester was I found a friend and a companion. And if there's one thing that I want anybody to know about Chester is that he, he can be your friend. That's why you need to discover him. That's why you need to read him, because he's going to be one of the best friends to have in today's world. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about one of your favorite subjects today. Well, it's a pleasure, and I can usually be talked into talking about Chesterton anytime, place. But a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dale Alquist on G.K. Chesterton. He is the president of the Chesterton Society, and you should go ahead and check out his work there. He has written a lot of great books on Chesterton that really introduce you to the work that Chesterton has done and written on. I mentioned during the show that one of my favorite books by him actually is Eugenics and Other Evils because of how prescient it is and how helpful it was for me in analyzing the way today's culture went. 
Thanks so much again for tuning in to this week's show. And if you want to check out past shows, go to lifesightnews.com where you can find under the podcast tab past episodes of this show. We're also on iTunes, SoundCloud, and anywhere that you get your podcasts. I also have columns going up several times a week over at lifesightnews.com and you can check them out there. Again, thank you so much uh, for tuning in this week and we do hope to see you again next week.